From Arcadia, California, The Carter Report presents the living word around the world. Hello, friend. I'm John Carter. We're talking today with two distinguished scientists, and we're talking about the theory of evolution. Is it true or is it false? The theory of evolution. My two guests are from a great organization called Reasons to Believe. Dr. Hugh Ross, a noted astronomer, and Dr. Faz Rana, a noted biologist. The theory of evolution, welcome to the program. The Carter Report is a self-supporting ministry with a global mission. We believe that the most important thing that we can do in this tremendous hour is to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We do not believe that this is business as usual. We believe that we are living in the closing hours in the history of this world. Bless your heart, friend. Look at the signs that are being fulfilled almost every day. The signs of the times are shouting at us and they're saying, Jesus is coming soon. I want you to be my partner in global mission. I want you to be my partner in helping to tell the world about the coming of Jesus. I want you to be my partner in the preaching of the distinctive truths of the three angels' messages. Please check us out at the new Carter Report website, carterreport.org. We have a special section whereby you can ask questions and I will give you the answers from the living word of the living God. That is the carterreport.org. My friend, we want you to join us in the mission to preach the gospel in China, in India, in Australia, in Africa, in the United States of America, wherever people are lost and wherever people need to hear the good news that Jesus saves. Please check us out. The new Carter Report website, carterreport.org. I want to hear from you today. Welcome to the program. We're talking today about the theory of evolution. Dr. Ross, a very warm welcome to you. Thank you. Dr. Rana, we're delighted to have you both with us Thank today. You. Is science incompatible with Christian faith and belief? Many people like Richard Dawkins tell me it is so. Well, he is right that science can test our belief systems. And now we're in agreement with them on that, but we disagree because we believe that science actually establishes the Christian faith. And the Bible commands us to use the record of nature mm -hmm. to establish the existence of God and his attributes. So God doesn't tell us to check our brains in at the door when we come to church. We're commanded to read both books, the book yeah. of scripture and the book of nature. And you think they're both in harmony? Yes, very much so. From your own personal perspective, why do you believe this? You're a scientist and yet you're a professing born-again believer. Everywhere I look in the creation, I just see overwhelming evidence for design, whether it's 
at an astronomical level, looking at the cosmos or at the microscopic level, looking at how biochemical systems are put together. I just see overwhelming evidence for design, for God's fingerprints. Mm. Uh, you have an organization. You're the president and you're the vice president of Reasons to Believe here in beautiful California with all the smog and everything. Um, you obviously believe that a, a person can be an intellectual and have a, an intelligent faith in God, obviously. Dr. Dawkins is a, probably a genius. He's from Oxford University. He would disagree with us entirely, Dr. Richard Dawkins. He believes that God is a myth. And of course, he's a great proponent of the idea that, and he wouldn't put it in these terms, but I'm doing so, sort of cutting to the bottom line. He's a great proponent of the idea that if you leave gas alone by itself long enough, starting with hydrogen, it'll become people singing and dancing. Now, one of the arguments he uses that I think is a very anti-intellectual argument from this very intellectual man is that believers and Christians have done some bad things. This is one of his big premises. Christians have done some really bad things, wicked things, therefore, the Bible and religion, it's all wrong. Has he got a point? Have Christians done, have religious people done bad things? Well, certainly they have. But where I think where Dawkins is going wrong is God tells us in the scriptures that we people are failures. Mm -hmm. uh, and we should expect based on the Bible that people will do, quote, bad things. Yes, yes. But God has also told us there's a way out and that's the value of Christianity. Mm. You know, my concern about Richard Dawkins is his arguments against the Christian faith are straw man arguments. They are indeed. Yeah. Yes. And his arguments against the Christian faith, is this not true, can be used against atheists. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, for example, going back to this point that human beings have done some bad things, mm. but human beings also have this capacity for altruism. Yes. We, and, and we're yes. unique yes. among all creatures in yes. that we have this ability to not uh, I scratch your back, you scratch my back mm -hmm. type of altruism, but altruism where it's complete generosity, where I have nothing to benefit mm -hmm. from, mm -hmm. from doing good mm -hmm. things for you. Mm -hmm. And again, Scripture teaches us that we're made in God's image mm -hmm. and that be bearing God's image, we have this capacity to do good things. It's that image of God has been marred because of sin. So we do bad things as well. Professor Dawkins wrote a book, you know, on the selfish gene. But another Oxford professor wrote a book called The Selfless Gene. And the argument of that Oxford professor against Richard Dawkins is that there is in man a gift from God that does good things for the sake of doing good, not simply as a benefit to that person. Um, all right then. When I think about Dr. Dawkins, and I've listened to him and I've read some of his books, what I think he fails to comprehend is the truth that you've taught, that the Bible teaches that we are sinners in need of redemption. But if you want to see some really bad things, you only need to go to Russia. I've been there 42 times and think that during the time when the communists and the atheists were in charge, you had about 
between 50 and 70 million people put to death, murdered. So here's an argument, if we're going to use arguments against Christians because they've done some bad things like the Spanish Inquisition, here's an argument against atheism, is it not? Yes, but evolution, mm. in a sense, is used by many people yes. to justify their atheism. Tell me what, why you'd say this. Well, be, the idea is that if, if everything can just evolve on its own, yes. mm. then we don't need God no. to... God, God to, is superfluous. Right, and in, in fact, yeah. even Dawkins said, mm. evolution has allowed me to become an intellectually satisfied atheist. Mm -hmm. So the, the theory of evolution is used to, to fuel yes. atheism. Yes. You're a biologist. Tell me the most compelling reasons, right hot from your heart, the most compelling reasons you find in the world of biology why a thinking person can believe in God. To me, it's just the incredible, elegant designs of biological systems, whether it's at a, the level of an organism or at the level of a cell, the way these systems are put together, it's so elegant and so sophisticated and so clever. That was what prompted me to, to believe that there had to be a mind bef behind everything as an agnostic. Now, you know, uh, you know a trillion times more about these things than I do. <laughs> at least a trillion, maybe more. You know, your argument of the one quadrillionth of the one quadrillionth of the one quadrillionth. <laughs> well, that's about where I'm at, you know, with biology. Give me some specific examples. Look upon me now as an agnostic, not an atheist, but an agnostic, a person who says, I don't know what to believe, and I'm on the point of accepting or not accepting, of going with God or becoming like Richard Dawkins. Hit me with the, give me some hard arguments why I should believe. Well, um, one of the things that I find to be mind-boggling as a biochemist is mm. that the way in which biochemical systems are put together is identical to how we would design systems as human engineers and human designers. And this is essentially revitalizing the old watchmaker argument of William Paley. A watch requires a mind. You, you think that's a legitimate argument? I do, because that argument is taken to the next level and the next level with what we've learned about biochemical systems. Mm. So for example, the way in which DNA is managed and manipulated by the cell's machinery is identical to how computer systems fundamentally function. Uh, this British mathematician, Alan Turing, devised something yes. called a Turing machine, yes. which is the, the theoretical framework for how computer systems operate. And inside the cell, when you look at how DNA is manipulated, it literally is a collection of Turing machines that are operating on the DNA. The cell, in effect, is a very sophisticated computer system at its very essence. And we all have computer systems, or most people do, sitting on their, you know, on their office desk. Nobody in their right mind would think that a computer system just simply came about through the, the assembly of individual component parts. Mm. And so why would we think, when we look at biochemical systems that at, at essence are computer systems, but much more sophisticated. Why would we think they came about through simply chance events? That's an argument that appeals to me, um, and I'm sure to many other people. Let's go to astronomy for a moment, and then let's come back and we'll talk about the cell. Can you give me, Dr. Ross, as an astronomer, 
your strongest reason that the universe is fine-tuned for life? You know, we talk about the anthropic principle, anthropos, the Greek word for man. Look upon me as an agnostic. Give me your, your strongest reason that the universe was made for human beings. Well, what I would tell you right off is this is no longer an issue of debate. All astronomers and physicists recognize when we look at the universe as a whole and the laws of physics, we see overwhelming evidence that has been fine-tuned design to make possible mm. the existence of life in human beings in particular. But that allows you to keep it at a distance. You know, the universe is big. Yes. Yeah. The truth is that principle applies when we look at our cluster of galaxies. When we look at the design features of our Milky Way galaxy. We look at our solar system, the planets and the stars, look at our moon. Mm. No matter all levels of size scale, we see this overwhelming evidence for design. We see it on the way the surface of the earth is structured. In fact, if you go to our website, you'll see over 900 different features that must be fine-tuned design to make possible the existence of human beings How here on Earth. How fine-tuning is it? You say fine-tuned, but tell me something, uh, give me a figure. Is it, uh, if it's out by one and two, out by one well, and a hundred, or what? If you were to ask me as a scientist, where mm. do we find the most spectacular evidence for fine-tuning design that we can measure? It would be dark energy. Mm -hmm. You know, dark energy tells us how rapidly the universe is going to expand over its history. If you expand it too quickly, all you get is gas. If you expand it too slowly, all you're going to get are black holes and neutron stars. If you want the stars and planets for life as possible, that dark energy must be fine-tuned to better than one part in 10 to the 122nd power. Now say that last bit again. To what? One part in 10 to the 122nd power. That's 122 zeros after the one. To put that in context, that exceeds the best example of human engineering design by 10 to the 97 times. We'll be back after this break. We're talking about the theory of evolution. Hello, friend. I'm John Carter in Colombia. Behind me is the great city of Bogota, the capital of this amazing country. This city is a city of more than 8 million souls. It's up more than 8,000 feet in the Andes. And we've come here today with one purpose in mind, to preach the everlasting gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're here because we have a commission from God. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the everlasting gospel baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The people here need the gospel of Christ. And I'm asking you today, come with us, if not in body, but come with us in spirit. This has been a very, very dangerous city, a very dangerous part of the world. But we believe that we are safe when we are in the hands of God. Therefore, I'm beseeching you in the name of Christ and in the names of these 8 million plus inhabitants in the city of Bogota to come and help us to preach the Word of God. Please support the preaching of the Word of God in Colombia. Please write to me, John Carter, Post Office Box 1900, Thousand Oaks, California, 
91358 in Australia, write to me at the address Terrigal, New South Wales, Australia. Jesus said, work while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. Please write to me today. Thank you and God bless you. Welcome back to the Carter Report. We're talking today about the theory of evolution. I have two great guests with me. Dr. Hugh Ross, glad to have you with us today, Hugh. And Dr. Faz Rana, glad to have you with us, Faz. Describe to me, please, in 10 words or less. <laughs> Describe to me the complexity of a single cell and tell me how it could have evolved from nothing. Well, I mean, the best analogy would be to think of a, a, a city like the city of Los Angeles. That, in effect, is the, the, the type of complexity that you begin to see when you think about what's happening inside Is this really so, or is this, uh, pardon my saying, is this a little hyped up? Is, is a cell really like Los Angeles? It's probably even much more sophisticated and mm. complex than the city of Los Angeles. Certainly better run. <laughs> yeah, but, and, you know, you're, you're looking at a collection of operations and processes uh -huh. that are taking place that are highly integrated and networked together. Right. Break it down for me as a layperson. Describe how a cell, do, do you understand how a cell functions? As, hopefully as much as anybody does. I mean, we still are learning more and more but, about what's going on. But do on you in really understand it? Yes, I think so. Uh, or, or tell me then, how does a cell function and describe the complexity? Again, it, it's this system that is extremely complex, highly networked, where you've got these complex processes that are going on where the different processes are talking to each other at the just right time, making sure all the operations inside the cell are taking place. So you've got a control center in the nucleus that's- How right. big is the cell? Um, it depends on the, the type of cell you're dealing mm. with. Bacteria, about a micron in size. How big's a micron? Uh, one millionth of a meter, so about a millionth of a yard. Mm -hmm. um, so relatively small. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, other, other types of cells that are called eukaryotic cells. So you, you gentlemen are at the very opposite end exactly. of the spectrum, are, aren't you? Right. Yes. Yeah. You're into the smallest and you're into the biggest. Right. Uh huh. So this is a great combination here. <laughs> there it is. Okay, so we've got a thing that's a, did you say a, a millionth of a meter? Yeah, that's a meter a, is 39 inches. Yeah, that's a, that would be a, mm. a, a bacterium. There are some cells that are, can be up to about 200 microns in size that are oh, just barely visible with the human eye. Oh, so it's quite big. Yeah, so like a, an egg cell, for example. So you've got a membrane around this thing. Right, so it's kind of like mm. the, the, the city wall and it controls. And what's inside it? Inside of it is, again, a whole collection of molecules that are carrying out all kinds of different operations. You have, again, the nucleus is the control center. It's, mm. And then it directs the production of molecules called mm. proteins, which are the molecules that are carrying out all the activities in the cell. This is like, these are like the machines. Mm. But the, the production of these machines is through an assembly line-like process happening at these structures called the ribosome. Mm. You've got mitochondria, which are the powerhouses of the cell that are producing energy for the cell's operations to use. You've got highway systems happening in the cell that are moving materials back and forth to different locations at the just right time. You know, um, I'm talking now as a layperson, 
uh, you're talking as scientists, but it boggles my mind to come to the viewpoint that this happened by itself. Basically, it happened by itself. Isn't that what the evolution, atheistic evolution says? That, that's exactly it. They would argue that it starts with simple molecules that begin to interact and form com more complex molecules that then begin to associate into these conglomerates that begin to adopt the properties of life. And so it's, it's essentially evolution applied to molecules is how evolutionary biologists attempt to account for the origin of life. Now, uh, let me play the devil's advocate. Many scientists believe that life evolved on planet Earth over a relatively short period of time. They say that the, the Earth is so many billions of years old and there was a Hades period. Uh, nothing could live during the Hades period. And then, correct me if I'm misquoting what many scientists believe, there was a, a window in time of about 100 million years. And at the beginning of the 100 million years, you've got nothing. At the end of the 100 million years, you've got life in all its complexity. In your opinion, is it possible to go from, from zero to a, a Los Angeles running with tremendous efficiency in that relatively short period of time? I'm highly skeptical that that could happen. And in fact, most original life researchers who are atheists, who are committed to the evolutionary paradigm, yes. in, in private will readily admit they have no way to explain the origin of life. Their commitment to the evolutionary paradigm is primarily philosophical, hmm. where you know they have already rejected the notion yes, yes. that this is designed, yeah. it's gotta be evolution, but we have no clue how that happened. Mm, there's no alternative viewpoint that's worthy of their consideration. And the more and more that we study the origin of life problem, the more and more difficult the problem becomes. Hmm. Now, this is going completely in a different direction. We're going to go from the smallest to the biggest. Now, you are a noted astronomer. You have worked on quasars and all of those things, haven't you, at Caltech? Yes, yes. What's a quasar? Well, a quasar is a supergiant black hole in the center of a giant galaxy that's sucking in huge quantities of gas and converting into... Much bigger than a cell. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a vast thing. Yes. Now, the universe out there is incredibly complex, isn't it? It is. But it's all working together. And it's finely balanced. Yes, for the benefit of life. And so you told us about dark energy. Uh, isn't that the stuff that nobody knows a lot about that composes most of the, the stuff in the universe? Makes up about three quarters of all the stuff of the universe. That's the dark energy. That's the dark energy. That's not the dark matter. No. Dark but if you took them both else. together, what is it? What's the percentage? You put them both together, it adds up to about 99.73% of all the stuff of the universe. So most of the stuff in the universe we can't even see, even with the, we have telescopes. All those stars and galaxies, that's a quarter of a percent of all the stuff of the universe. Say it again. Quarter of a percent. So all the stuff we see, uh, yeah. the stuff I put up on the screens when I talk on astronomy. Right. That's a quarter <laughs> of a percent. All that tremendous stuff I put up on the screen. That's a quarter of one percent. Right. And the other stuff, we really don't know much about it. Well, we're learning a lot about it. And we're mm -hmm. learning that it has to be exceptionally fine-tuned 
both in its quantity and its specific locations in the universe in order to make possible the existence of life. Is it not true that the dark energy is driving the expansion of the universe? It's the primary factor. It's not the only factor, but it's the primary factor governing the expansion of the universe today. When the universe was young, the matter of the universe was actually more important than the dark energy. But you need both the mm -hmm. matter and the dark energy to be fine-tuned. Now, what is the, when you say fine-tuned, to what extent is the fine-tuning? Now, it is a fact. We know it's a fact. People can't argue with this, that the universe is expanding. Yes. And the universe did have a beginning. Yes. Now, of course, this is all in harmony with Scripture. Right. Uh, Genesis 1, my old Bible says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Right. And so the Bible doesn't talk about uh, a universe that has no beginning and no ending, not like the... Uh, the oscillations of the Hindus and right. that noted astronomer that you spoke about uh, in a previous program. Okay, if the universe were to expand too fast or to slow down, would not the results be catastrophic? It'd be catastrophic in a sense you would not have the stars and planets that you need to make life possible showing up at the right time in the location mm. of the universe. So we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be here. So break it down for me and for my great audience who are listening spellbound to this program on evolution. Tell me, try to break it down to me, the fine tuning of this dark matter that is largely responsible for the expansion of the universe, which is largely responsible for us being here. Well, there's two components in the fine-tuning. The expansion of the universe determines what elements you're going to get. And so, for example, if you expand the universe too quickly, all you're going to get is nothing but hydrogen and helium for the whole age of the universe. Mm -hmm. And we can't live on that. You can't live on that. Mm -hmm. Or if you expand it too slowly, everything gets fused up to elements heavier than iron. Mm. In both cases, you're lacking the carbon, the nitrogen, the oxygen, the elements crucial for the existence of life. So just to get the right chemistry, uh, dark energy and the mass of the universe must be extraordinarily fine-tuned. They also must be extraordinarily fine-tuned to get stars and planets that will make life possible. Expand it too fast, stars won't form. Expand it too slowly, all you get are big stars that burn up quickly and wind up being black holes and neutron stars, uh, where molecules aren't even possible. You can't have life without molecules. And astronomers, as far back as 40 years ago, determined that the degree of fine-tuning design is many, many orders of magnitude greater than anything we human beings are capable of. Which of mean, comprehending. Yeah. Yes. Which means the one that created the universe must be much more intelligent, knowledgeable, creative, and powerful than we human beings. And we can actually put a number on it that eliminates all the gods from contention except the one we see described in the Holy Bible. And so it seems to me, and in these areas, I am a complete layperson, that whether you go from the smallest, uh, a micron inside a cell, or you go to the biggest, the universe, there's overwhelming evidence to believe that we came from the hand of God. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you have enjoyed this program. Please write to me, John Carter. The address is now appearing on the screen, Post Office Box 1900, Thousand Oaks in Australia. It's Terrigal.
And please write to Dr. Ross, Dr. Rana, at Reasons to Believe. And remember this, God made you and Christ died for you. Goodbye for now. Oh, creature.